say that this is our last go in Corinthians, but you know God's Word's God's Word. Whether it's Corinthians or whether it's Hezekiah, it's still God's Word, right? Huh? <laughs> so somebody's going to start preaching through Hezekiah next Sunday. All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. Uh, really, verses 10 through 18 go together, but uh, we're going to shorten this thing and start in verse number 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse number 13. Look what Paul does as he closes down uh, this letter to the church in Corinth. He says this, Be on alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men, and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Well, Paul knows he's coming down to the close here. And he wants to give these Corinthians some advice that's not only going to help them survive, but it's going to help them to thrive in ministry. And it's interesting that he says that in light of what has just gone on in verses 10 through 12. Here's what he says, basically. And even farther back, we can back up in the first part of this chapter and we can see that Paul is saying this. Paul's saying, I really would like to come because he knows they're in need of leadership, right? I mean, there's a leadership vacuum there and that's why all of these problems in Corinth. Paul said, I'd really like to come, but there's been this wide and... Then and, and, and door for this wide door of effective service open for me and I can't pull myself away. So Paul says, I can't come. And he says, I'm going to send Timothy, but Timothy can't be there long. You receive him, but then you send him right back here with me because I need him here with me. Now he says, I've also talked to Apollos in verse number 12. And Apollos don't want to come right now at all. And it's interesting, you can tell something about the condition of the church probably by the response of these men. Here Timothy was scared to go. Now what does that say about the church? I mean, there was some mean folk down there, right? If, if Timothy's scared to go, there's got to be some issues there. And Paul warns them, don't y'all scare my boy and don't you treat him bad. And now Apollos, when Paul talks to Apollos, you can tell in the language that Paul uses, Paul says, it is not his desire at all to come right now. You see, Apollos was mentioned up front and he's probably a little bit put out with them because they had used his name as part of the division and there was a group that had kind of united around Paul, around Apollos and around Peter and Apollos was probably just a little bit ticked at them and he knew that he better not go down there right now because if he goes down there right now, he's going to set a lot of things in order, maybe not in the best manner. So Paul says, no, we've got to let this calm down a little bit before I go. So now look what we've got. We've got Paul can't go. We've got Timothy can only be there for a little while. And we've got Apollos refusing to go. 
So now you got a church down there that is just wrecked with problems because they have this leadership vacuum. And Paul's going to tell them how to straighten this out and how that they can thrive as they march forward as the church of the living God. So I want to speak to you today on two subjects that Paul brings out in this, in this text and that is these two characteristics that we sometimes look at as mutually exclusive and one positive and one negative and that is the characteristics of being strong yet submissive. And they really are not mutually exclusive. As a matter of fact, these two characteristics are complementary. You know, no matter what your position in the kingdom of God is, there are times when you must be strong and there are times when you must be submissive. Sometimes you must be one, sometimes you must be the other, sometimes you must be both at the same time. So there really is no disjunct or no disconnect between these two. They are totally complementary. And when Paul talks about being strong and being submissive, here's what he's really talking about. He's talking about strength that is under control. And friend, what good is being strong if it's not controlled? I mean, stop and think about it. The space shuttle that we used to launch from Cape Kennedy, one of the most powerful vehicles that's ever been made. I mean, that thing is basically sitting on a hydrogen bomb. You know how much power that thing has when it's just sitting there breathing and you can just see it doing this on that launch pad? I mean, there's enough power right there to wipe out that entire Merritt Island launch area. But NASA is able to take that kind of power and they're able to control it, harness it, and launch that vehicle hundreds of miles into space because they had strength, but they had it under control. When you have something that's strong but not under control, you've got problems. You know what I'm saying? And Paul really here, what he's describing is another biblical word that is the word meek. M-E-E-K. Meek. It's used several times in the Bible. And Paul uh, or James uses it like this in James chapter 2. He says that with meekness we are to receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. So meekness or strength under control is a quality that's necessary before we can even receive the Word of God. That's pretty important, is it not? And then we go to the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, and we hear Jesus say, say things like this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So strength under control is the idea. You know... Uh, 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 if I had the strongest plow mule in Pike County, but yet that dude was not under my subjection when I put the harness on him, he's just going to plow up all my corn and potatoes, right? I mean, he's strong, but what does it profit me? I don't have anything out there that's growing because this mule's strong, but he won't listen to me. And to be honest with you, that's where a lot of believers are today. A lot of believers are strong but their strength is out of control. And it's not being focused in the right place. Therefore, that strength ends up sometimes being destructive rather than productive. You have heard me before use the illustration of a shotgun shell or a rifle cartridge. You know, the, all the strength in that, in that cartridge 
in that round comes because of the direction in which the energy contained in that cartridge or in that shell is focused. You see, if, if, if it wasn't for the barrel of a rifle focusing all of the energy that's contained in that cartridge downrange as a trajectory going to its target, then that cartridge would be absolutely useless. As a matter of fact, when I was a fireman a hundred years ago, we were never worried about people who had a lot of ammunition stored in their house. Because you can take a box of 12-gauge shotgun shells and run them through a house fire, and a fireman can go in there in total blackout with his hose and air pack, and that, that, uh, that box can ignite beside him, and chances are it's going to do nothing but make a loud flash and bang because the energy is not directed. But bud, let me tell you what got our attention. When we went into a house fire and the owner tells us, I have a lot of weapons in there. Next question, are those weapons chambered? Do they have ammunition chambered? And he says, yes sir, every one of them's got a, got a round in the magazine. That's when we were a little bit nervous. Because if you got a round in a magazine of a barrel and that thing goes off, it's going to blister somebody. And pine trees, you know, I mean, we've been in house fires where rifles would go off with one chamber and you could hear 30 alt 6 rounds going through pine trees a half a mile away. That's when it's dangerous. Strength comes when, uh, uh, when, when our strength, or, or strength is productive when that strength is controlled. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Corinthians. Strong yet submissive. Hey, if you got a strong-willed child, you got problems, right? Because normally a strong-willed child is out of control. They are, the only thing that controls them is their own will. Somehow or another, if you can harness the energy of a strong-willed child, you've got something. You've got potential. You've got productivity. So a strong-willed child is not a bad child. It's just a child that needs to learn how to harness that energy. And here's what Paul's talking about. So notice what he says to us as he talks about being strong and submissive. In verses 13 and 14, he tells us this. He tells us, I think, that strength can be cultivated. It can be cultivated. I mean, if that weren't true, every gym in the United States of America would go out of business, right? Because what is it all about? It's about strength training. And it's about cultivating and it's about becoming stronger in the physical realm. And if you can become strong in the physical realm, hear me, you can also become strong in the spiritual realm. Now, check this out. Look what Paul does in verses uh, 13 and 14. He gives us here one, two, three, four imperative verbs in rapid fire succession. Now, here's how we're going to understand this. We're going to take the last one. We're going to take number four as the predominant verb in that group. And then we're going to let the other three explain to us how we achieve the goal that is embodied in number four, which is what? Be strong. It's an imperative command, non-negotiable. Nobody has a reason or justification for being a spiritual wimp or weenie. Paul says, be strong. So how are we to cultivate strength and how are we to be strong? 
Well, wouldn't it be unlike Paul not to tell us how? So let's look at these first three imperatives in this group and I think that gives us insight. Notice what he says. The very first one in verse number 13, he says, Be on the alert. Now, here's the heart of this word and here's how it was used a lot of times. If if you have ever seen a deer walking through the woods, that's a perfect picture of what this word means. Because here's what a deer does. A deer will walk through the woods, it'll take a step and it'll look around. It'll take another step or two and it looks around. I mean, it's on high alert. You can just tell they're on high alert. And that's what Paul is getting at here when he says, be on the alert. So here's what he's telling us. Number one, if we're going to cultivate strength in our life, the first thing that we must do is we must be guarded. Guarded. Now, what are we to be guarded against? You've got to keep it in context of what he tells us that we're to be, that we're to be strong. So here's what we're to guard against. If you were going to fill a bucket with water and that bucket has holes in it, what is the first course of action that you've got to take before you can ever expect to have a full bucket of water? You've got to do what? You've got to plug the holes. Otherwise, you're never going to have a full bucket of water. So what are we to be on the alert against? What are we to be guarded against? We're to be guarded against those things that, that, that steal our strength. To those things that rob us of our strength, i.e., what is the hole in the bucket in your life? What is it that's keeping you from being strong in the grace which was in the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it that's keeping you from being strong in the Lord, as Paul says, in other places? What is the hole? Where's all the strength leaking out of? Because we got to plug that hole if we ever expect to be strong. Now, when we go to the Proverbs, here's what you'll find the writer of the Proverbs saying in his wisdom. He says, My son, do not give your strength to... and fill in the blank. Just go through the Proverbs and you'll find that formulaic saying, Do not give your strength to this. And you know what he's talking about? The same thing that Paul's talking about. He's talking about, Do not let something steal your strength. So what is it that's robbing you of your strength? What is it that's preventing you from being a spiritually strong person? I mean, for some of us, it's hobbies. Nothing wrong with a hobby until it crosses that line and it starts consuming all of your energy and all of your strength. For some of us, it's other unhealthy things like addictions. As soon as we get a little headway built up, that hook that's in us pulls us back in the direction that it wants to go. And it takes our strength away from us. I mean, for some of us, it's just the fact that we're undisciplined. And that robs us of all of our strength. So if we're going to be strong and thrive in the future like Paul wants the Corinthian church to do, Friend, we got to be guarded. And we got to be guarded against those things that rob you of your strength. Number next. Not only does he say if you're going to be strong, you got to be guarded, but he also says if you're going to be strong, we must be grounded. Grounded. Now check this out. 
verse number 13, be on the alert. And here's next what he says. Stand firm in the faith. And you know how, you know how some of those big old oak trees that went through Hurricane Michael just stood there? You know why it was they just stood there? Because they were grounded. That's right. They had a deep root system, right? And if you and I are going to be ground, are going to be going to be strong, then we got to be grounded. If you're not grounded, if you don't have deep roots, then the first little breeze that comes along is going to blow you overboard. Man, I talk with folk all the time who are in spiritual shipwreck, and here's why they tell me they're in spiritual shipwreck. It's normally by some insignificant little piddly thing that happened way over here on the periphery that shouldn't even been a puff of wind, but it blew them down. So here's the reason why you're falling. Don't point towards anybody else. Don't point towards any circumstance. Don't point towards any hypocrite or anything that's happened in the church. The reason you're falling is because you're not grounded. Because you don't have roots. Now look what it is that Paul says. He says, he says uh, stand firm in the faith. And anytime the word faith has the in front of it, it's talking about the body of teaching that's contained within the Word of God. This is the body of teaching which, which encapsulates the faith. This is the faith. Jude says it like this. He, t- he requires or, 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 or talks about the Bible as the faith once delivered to the saints. All of the teaching of God's Word. Now, here's the thing that we've got to do. We've got to answer a question before we can ever determine whether or not we're going to be strong. And here's the question that we've got to answer. The question that we've got to answer for ourselves and be honest is this. Is this book the Word of God? Is this book the Word of God? We've got to answer that question for ourselves personally. Because here's... Here's the implications. If this book is the Word of God, then this book has all authority in my life. And if it's the Word of God, that means I've got to obey it. I've got to move my life from where it is to where God's Word says it ought to be. Now a lot of people answer that question in the affirmative, but when it comes down to living the book, they say no. They'll say, no, well, I think, well, then what you're saying is what you think has more authority than what God has said. You see, that's, that just doesn't work. So here's, here's where really being strong comes down. Everyone faces a fork in the road. And that fork in the road is over this book right here. Is this book God's Word? And if we say, yes, it's God's Word, then that mandates that we pull up our big boy drawers and we start living the book. Huh? If we say yes, then it's time for us to put on our big girl drawers and start doing what the book says and stop trying to justify why we're not doing it. I had rather somebody tell me, nope, the only thing that thing's good for is toilet paper. Then I had somebody tell me, yep, that's the th- authoritative, infallible Word of God from cover to cover and then not live it. Huh? Paul says, if you're going to be strong, number one, you've got to be guarded. Number two, you've got to be grounded. 
If it's the Word of God, ain't no excuses for us not having deep roots right here. For us not knowing this thing to the very best of our ability and beyond because the Holy Spirit gives us ability beyond our own to understand what He has written in God's Word. So Paul tells us, he says, if you're going to be strong, number one, you've got to be guarded. Number two, you've got to be grounded. And look at number three in verse number 13. Act like men. So let me say it like this. Paul says you've got to be guarded, you've got to be grounded, and number three, you've got to be grown up. You've got to be grown up. You've got to be an adult in more ways than just spiritually. When he says here, act like men, he uses a very specific... The word, the word refers to a very specific part of the male anatomy. When he says, act like men, be grown up. Because have you ever noticed something about kids? Have you ever noticed something about folk who are not grown up? Have you ever, talked to, have you ever noticed about adults that are not mature and grown up? Have you ever noticed that they waste a whole lot of energy? Huh? I mean, how many times have I said just recently, looking back there in Grace Kids, my gosh, I wish I had their energy. <laughs> Look what they're doing. They're climbing the walls back there, huh? I mean, they are. But here's the thing about it. Kids have a whole lot of energy, but it's all wasted. Is it not? And here's what happens with folks who are not grown up. You know, we've already talked about being guarded against what steals your strength. If you're not grown up, if you're not an adult, if you're not mature in the faith, you're going to waste a whole lot of strength doing things like fighting. Arguing, bickering, justifying sin. You're going to waste a whole lot of energy doing those types of things. Whereas if you're grown up, you've got that energy focused like a laser. Like down the barrel of a highly sighted, precise rifle. And there's not a whole lot of wasted energy. Everything is productive. You're using all of your energy in the right place rather than giving your strength to something else. So Paul tells us strength can be cultivated. He says here's how you cultivate it. You cultivate it by being guarded against what robs you of your strength, by being grounded in what gives you your strength, that is the Word of God, and then by applying God's Word just being grown up. Just being grown up. Being mature in the faith. If you look at those things, I think there's a, there's a succession. I think they happen one after another. Because you can't be grown up if you're not grounded. You can't be grounded if you're not guarded. So I think there's, there's a connection between those. They're not just disassociated from one another. But notice what else Paul says. If you're going to thrive in the future, you've got to be strong and submissive. He tells us, number one, that strength can be cultivated. He tells us, number two, that strength must be controlled. Must be controlled. Now here's where we're talking about the barrel of the gun and the mule being in subjection to the one who's doing the plowing. You know, when Heather and I were pastoring in Florida 
years ago. I was waiting for somebody to say that. Like you're not pastoring now and it's not Florida. <laughs> Thank you. It is Florida. I'm just seeing if y'all were sharp. Turns out my wife's the only one listening to me today. Jerry, let's just me and you talk about this. Nobody else is listening. <laughs> They're scared. You ain't scared, right? <laughs> she ain't scared of me. <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> what in the world were we talking about? We were plowing mules or something, weren't we? Let me get back here. Yeah, we were talking about strength being controlled. When I was pastoring, one of the ladies on the search committee that called us in 1996 to Hilliard, Florida, at that time she was the highest ranking female banking executive in the state of Florida. Did you hear me? The highest ranking female bank officer in the state of Florida. Look at here. This woman was these things. She was guarded. She didn't waste her words or energy. She was grounded and she was grown up. To the extent that most every man in our church was intimidated by her and was pretty much scared of her. But somehow or another, God just gave us a connection from the very beginning. And I knew that this lady was the type of person I wanted on my leadership team. Now look, I'm talking about this lady uh, had some power. You know what I'm saying? She was a powerhouse in her profession and it bled over everywhere else in her life. But I said, i got to have this lady on my leadership team. She, she served with us on our leadership team almost the entire time we were there. There was rarely a time when she and I disagreed about a course of action that should be taken. And if we disagreed, here's what she would say. She would say, now this is why I think we should do this in light of this, knowing that we're going to get this and this as implications because of this. Now, Pastor, why do you want to do what you want to do? Well, I want to do what I want to do because this and this and this and this. She said, well, Pastor, we see it from two different perspectives, but here's the bottom line. You're the pastor, so I'm going with what you want to do. Do you know how rare that is? It is extremely. So that is scarce as hen's teeth. But I will tell you, I can work with anybody that has that type of characteristics. They're strong, but yet submissive. Here was somebody who knew when to be assertive and strong and here was a time when she knew that it was God's will in her life to be submissive. So here's what Paul says. Check out these verses. I want you to see this. Uh, notice what he does in verse number, uh, verse number 16. He says that you also be in subjection to such men. Underline that phrase, to such men. And then in verse number 18, he says it again. Therefore, acknowledge such men. So how is strength under control is the question. And Paul answers it again by the fifth verb, which is subjunctive in this series of five. First four imperative, last one subjunction. He says that strength is control, number one, by unconditional love. By unconditional love. Look what he says in verse number, um, verse number 13. Excuse me, 14. Let all that you do be done in love. So here's what Paul is saying, and it's no coincidence that he says that right on the heels of saying, be strong. 
Now, have you ever know folk that are strong, but they'll just by golly bulldoze right over the top of you? That's the scenario he's talking about avoiding. Because some folk are strong, but they're like a bull in a china closet. They don't have any self-awareness. They don't have any empathy. They don't have any concern for anybody else. But Paul says, let your strength be controlled by your unconditional love. It's the word agape, that God type of love. So strength, number one, is controlled by love. But notice where he spends his time. Not only does he say that strength is controlled by unconditional love, but he says that strength must be controlled by qualified leaders. Now this is where I want to spend my time today. It took me all this time to get here. Because man, there is such uh, confusion out there today about who or what is a leader. And right here, Paul gives us some rock-solid characteristics of leaders that should be the ones who are controlling the strength, the collective strength of the church. Look at it like this. Look at it as if the church is the rifle. You're a loaded rifle with a long barrel. That's what you are, okay? The leader is the one who picks up the strength of the church, which is embodied metaphorically as the rifle, the cartridge, and the barrel. And the leaders are the one who direct the energy of the church. That's what they do. They simply direct it. But they can't direct that energy if it's not under control. And man, there are a whole lot of churches today where everybody's just doing their own thing. Have you noticed that? Where everybody thinks they ought to be the leader, where everybody thinks they get a vote, and where they vote themselves most of the time right out of the will of God. It's amazing. But man, there's something about this leadership issue and about being strong and submissive and knowing when to be strong, when to be submissive, when to be both, when to be in subject to your leaders because like my female banking officer says, I would do it this way, but I'm going with you because you're the pastor. So I'm that strong. And I will tell you something, God gets all in that type of thing. He just does. That's what God honors. You know, I'm reminded... Back in the 1970s, the 1970s assembled five, maybe six of the most talented musicians who've ever played together. I mean, listen to me. Their, their albums just smashed the top of the billboard charts. They were so good until you were still listening to them today. I'm still listening to them today. I listened to them on the way to church this morning because that's just spiritual. <laughs> but here's what happened to that group. Every one of them was a type A talented leader. So guess what they couldn't do? They could not pull it together because every one of them thought they ought to be the leader. So after a very short stint of smashing the top out of the billboard charts, they all broke up and decided they were all going to be solo acts. You'd be hard-pressed to call to mind any song that they produced as soloists. But I'm telling you, if I told you the name of the group, we could put a list out there that long of how many they put out as a group. Might give you a hint a little bit later, but here we go. Notice what it is that Paul says. 
Let me give you some of these characteristics of leaders. And look, please remove me from this. Can you do that? I don't want you to think I'm preaching to you about me. I, I, I'm not. Here's why I want you, here's why I want you to know this. You know, we are ascending church, and we might send you off somewhere one day. And here's how you know how to identify whether somebody is a leader or not. Hey, we want to send you off, and one day we might send you off as the leader. And here's how we'll recognize if you are the leader or not. Man, there's some good characteristics of leaders that Paul gives here, and Paul's basically saying, hey, church down in Corinth, leaders like this, you submit yourself to them. Look what he says, number one. He says, leaders that, that are the ones who are directing the strength of the church, leaders to whom we can be in subjection and submit ourselves to, are known personally. They are known personally. Now check this out. Look what he says as he talks about the household of Stephanos. And you see, this is one big parenthesis. He gives us a big parenthetical statement. If it weren't for this parenthesis, this verse would read like this. Now I urge you, brethren, that you also be in subjection to such men. It would read like this, but he puts this big parenthesis in there. Now here's what the parenthesis gives us. All of these characteristics of the leader. Look what he says. And right there he says, You know the household of Stephanos. You know them. And the word that he uses there in the original language, language means you have perfect, intimate knowledge of these folks. So here's the first characteristic of a leader. If you're going to submit yourself to a leader, it is incumbent upon you to know that leader. It is incumbent upon the leader to make himself known. You know, they used to teach us in seminary, and by golly, they're right. I've, I've, I've tracked it out in my own ministry. You can be called to a church tomorrow, and the next day you are immediately the preacher. But it takes you about five years before you become the leader, the pastoral leader. Just mark it down. It does. It takes that long. And why does it take that long, Brandon? I mean, you understand what I'm talking about. Uh, it takes that long because folk got to get to know you. Because I want to tell you something. It's a rare day when folk going to follow somebody. Oh, no, let me, t- let me take that back. It's a rare day when Baptists going to follow somebody they don't know. Huh? I mean, if you're in the army, I had to, I had to, had to change it because you're in the army. It don't matter if you know the general or not. By golly, you had better follow him, right? But it's a little bit different in the Lord's army. <laughs> Among the ranks of Baptists, they don't want to follow somebody they don't know. And look, I'm not totally against that at all. I think leaders ought to be known, and you ought to know leaders. So here's here's my word to you. If you ever leave Grace Church, or if Grace Church ever sends you, or if somehow or another you're relocated, and you go to a church, you make sure you get to know the person you're sitting under. If you've got to have him over to your house for dinner, if you've got to take him out to lunch, if you got to carry him fishing, if you got to take him turkey hunting, whatever you got to do, you get to know that leader because it'll come a long way when you get in the battle. It'll go a long way. I can remember Heather and I, oh man, it's several years ago, 2014-15, Dane, we were in Brazil and we had a team come down. We were in the height. I mean, at that time, Dane and I were working ourselves to death. Those were in the days we were having 12, 16 teams coming to summer. You remember that? 
I know, I'm still trying to recover. Me too. And we had one team come down, and I had prepared them here stateside, given them a very specific assignment, and had trained them to carry it out. When we got them to the field, Dane, you know what happened. Most of the time it does. We got them to the field, and all of a sudden, God spontaneously opened the door for the gospel in a whole different direction, in a whole other geographic area. And I saw it and said, guys, we can't miss this. We need to use your energy this week over here. Now, that's just the way I roll. Well, I didn't know it, but amongst that team, there was eight or nine on that team. Amongst that team, there was a mutiny happening behind me. You know why? Because by golly, they had been preparing to do this, and we want to do this. I don't care what God's doing over there. I want to do this. So, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know any of this was going on because I was so focused on getting here and getting this done. And there was a man on that team. And that man gathered that team together that night because he was from that church. They knew him. He knew what was going on. And the next morning they came to the house and this is what one of the team members told me. One of the team members came and sat down with me at breakfast and said, Pastor Richie said, I just want to apologize because our entire team was upset with you yesterday because we came down here thinking we were going to do this and now all of a sudden we've been asked to go over here and do this and we just didn't like that at all. And we were about to go do this without you. But that night, Bill sat us down in the motel, and this is what Bill said to us. Bill said, now I want you all to listen to me, and I want you to listen to me good. I know Richie Allen. You might not, but I know him. And I've known him for a long time, and here's what I know about him. He doesn't do stuff like this randomly and without a cause. If he's doing it, he's got dang good reason. So this is my advice to you. You listen to the man who knows this place better than you do and let's get done what God wants us to do. Squelched every bit of it. And you know why we were able to make great advancement that week in an area where the gospel had never been? Because there was a man leading that team and he knew me. And you know who it is sometimes that I find in local churches who, who don't want to follow the leader or think they know a better way? disagree and want to go this way, it's because they don't know the leader. All I ask sometimes and all leaders ask is, hey, give me the benefit of the doubt. Do you know me? Am I a conniving shyster who's tried to put it to you? Who's tried to stab you in the back? Is that my MO? I don't think I've ever done that. So if I've never done it, why do you think I'm doing it now? Probably not. <laughs> so Paul says leaders, number one, are known. Number two, not only are leaders known personally, but leaders are fruitful paternally. Paternally as a father. Look what else Paul says. Paul says, you know, and look, he doesn't just say Stephanos. He says the household of Stephanos. In other words, you know the entire family of Stephanos. Here's the characteristic of a leader. A leader's first assignment is to lead his own family. If he can't lead his own family, Paul says if a man can't manage his own house, how can he manage the house of God? So what Paul is saying here is check out Stephanos. You know him. Not only you know him, but look at his family. All of his family are believers. He's doing something right in the home behind closed doors. And that's the first quality of a leader. Hey, listen to me. If your kids are a bunch of hellions, 
you're probably not the guy that needs to be in leadership. I mean, that's just all there is to it. Now, I'm not talking about your kids that got to be angels. Come on. I mean, they're just not. You know them. I mean, all they are. And, and they're not angels. They're, they're little sinners. That's what they are. <laughs> huh? Where do we get off calling them angels? No, they're not. They're just conniving little sinners who will tell you a lie to get what they want just as quick as that. Huh? But you know what I mean when I say that, when I speak generally. But Paul says, look, Stephanos... His entire household, you know them. And man, that's the quality of a leader. If a leader can't impact those who are closest to him, then how in the world is he going to impact those who are a little more distant from him? So number two, second quality of a leader. Not only are they known personally, but they are fruitful paternally. Now, I just abandoned my alliteration scheme for the sake of this text. Notice number three. They have an established track record. Look what Paul says. He says, You know the household of Stephanos that they were the first fruits of Achaia. In other words, Paul says, Hey, they're not new converts. They're not Johnny come lately, the new kid in town. Hint? Did y'all catch that little hint? All right. Just want to make sure y'all with me. Do you know that longevity says a whole lot for leaders? Did you know that? Longevity. How long has this person been doing it? But let me tell you what it is that most churches who are still operating under the old system where they run off a pastor every two years and they try to get the next one not like the one that they just had so they can do this, that, or another thing. So they get a search committee together of people who are not guarded, who are not grounded, who are not grown up to call the next pastor. And here's what they want, Cliff. They want... Uh, somebody who is about 25 years old who already has uh, 10 years of experience pastoring who wears skinny jeans and no socks and can appeal to the young folk because we got to get some young folk in here because our church is dying. Am I right? (laughs) Doesn't that about sound right? But look, there's something for longevity. I'm just now getting longevity in ministry and I've been doing this for 33 years. And ironically... (laughs) Because I'm doing it for 33 years, nobody wants me because I'm an old man. <laughs> huh? Longevity. There's something about longevity. Look at this guy's track record. What has he been doing? What is he doing? And that'll give you a good idea of what he will continue to do in the future. And Paul looks at Stephanos and says, You know Stephanos, and you know his whole household. And they are not, he is not the new kid on the block. He is a seasoned veteran at this. Check out number next. I don't even know what number I'm on, but check it out. Look what, it, look what else Paul says in verse number, number 13. Here's another characteristic of a leader. That they have devoted themselves. So characteristic number four, I think, is they have unswerving devotion. Unswerving devotion. The word that is translated devotion there, I think the King James translates it, translates it, they addicted. They've addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. And here's what the word means. The word means that they have set themselves apart solely and exclusively for this work. So here's what you do. You look at a leader and you say, man, is he devoted to this or is this just something he's doing as a hobby. 
Has his longevity in life indicated that he's devoted himself to this? And somebody who's devoted to it, guess what? If they're devoted to it, they ain't going to run off the first time there's trouble. They're going to stick with it. It doesn't matter how mean the people are. It doesn't matter how bad the circumstances are. It doesn't matter how tough the going is. If a leader is devoted to it, friends, he is there and he's there for the long haul. Get the impression today that a lot of leaders are just doing this till something better comes along. And that's not the case with biblical leadership. Check out number next. Not only do they have unswerving devotion, but they have what I call scriptural legitimacy. Because look what Paul says in verse number 15. They have devoted themselves, and here's what they devoted themselves for. For the ministry to the saints. Ministry to the saints. That's what legitimizes leadership. Now, hear me. There's a lot of guys today that think what legitimizes them is the fact that they were on the ticket at the last state pastor's conference and they preached at the pastor's conference. That's not what legitimizes. What legitimizes is not how big your church is and membership. What legitimizes is not how many conferences you led last year. What legitimizes is have you devoted yourself to the ministry of the people of God, warts and all. Huh? While I was pastoring in Hilliard again, I mean in Florida again, I called this, uh, this convention prima donna to come preach a five-day revival at our church. You know, you got to calendar these guys out a year in advance. And I was foolish. I listened to him preach at a conference one time and I said, man, I'd like that guy to come preach in our church. So I scheduled this prima donna to come and get in my pulpit at my church. So a week prior to him coming and us starting the revival, I called him on the phone to iron out some of the last minute details and here's what he said. He said, now pastor, I'm coming to your church to preach a revival. And when I say I'm coming to preach revival, that means I'm coming to your church to preach. I'm not coming down there to eat supper with your people. I'm not coming down there to go to fellowships. I'm not coming down there to hang out at Sunday school socials. I'm not coming down there to be in a, 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 a meeting after church. I'm coming down there to preach, and then I'm going back to my motel until the next time it's time for me to come back and preach. You know what I said? I said, sir, what's your address? He said, well, my address is such and such. I said, there'll be a check in the mail for you next week because from right this moment on, you're fired. And I paid him because I had him booked for a year, which means he probably turned down some other opportunities to fill that week. But I want to tell you, I don't want anybody in my pulpit that's too good to minister to my people. If you can't hang out with our people... Because that's where ministry takes place. It takes place life on life. I, I think ministry has, has, has accomplished more by one-on-one, -on -one, life on life impact than maybe through the pulpit. You know how high I regard preaching the Word, right? I'm going to go do a revival in a little country church next month. 
And you know what I'll spend more time doing than preaching? Hanging out with farmers. Going to dinner and lunch and breakfast with all kind of people while we're, while we're there. How do you think it'd go over if I said, now listen, I'm going to come preach a revival, but you just send somebody up to my motel and pick me up at 6.30 to have me there by 7, and I want to be back in my room by 9 o'clock, and y'all leave me the heck alone. Who's laughing? <laughs> Thank you. Man, legitimacy is about being, being willing to roll up your sleeves and get down into the, the dirt of ministry, right? Hey, I wish it was just preaching. I wish it was. I'd send out my resume to the biggest church in Florida right now. <laughs> but even at the big churches, it's not just about preaching. One of my mentors told me, he said, Son, a big church just means it's a bigger squirrel cage. And he said, if it's a bigger squirrel cage, there's more nuts. So... <laughs> Sounded reasonable to me, so I'd rather stay here with a few nuts. <laughs> Y'all come on, lighten up, huh? I <laughs> didn't offend you, did it, Mr. Monk? I didn't offend you, did it? That offended Ron. <laughs> we got a small cage, that's right. So there's a few of us nuts in here, right? <laughs> here we go. All right, number next. Characteristic of a leader to whom we can and should subject ourselves. Verse number 16, look what he says. That you be subject to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Characteristic, number five or six. A leader is also a hard worker. A hard worker. <laughs> I mean, you know the old joke about preachers. Oh, you went into ministry because you don't like to work, huh? <laughs> like chicken and you don't like to work. <laughs> That's the reason you go into ministry. I want to tell you something. Ministry is hard work. It really is. And that also legitimizes somebody. Over the course of the past, well, I don't know, from 2007 to 2012, Heather and I certified in the jungles of Brazil about 170-something pastors through the Baptist College of Florida. Gave theological education where theological education was not available. And here's what I can't get some of those guys to do. Dane, you know it. We'll get a church started in Quilombola Village and we'll have one of our churches, one of our Brazilian churches adopt it. There's normally one of, the, one of my trained pastors at that church. Here's what we'll do. We'll have what they call a mutirão. That's where everybody comes together and we build a mud hut in one day. Now that's hard work. But here's what the pastors will do. Dane, you can verify this. We'll ride out there. It'll take us sometimes two hours to get there on a motorcycle. So we wore out just by the time we get there. And everybody then has to build a mud hut church. But here's what the pastor will do. The pastor will pull up on his motorcycle and he'll go by golly sit down under a shade tree and he won't get up and lift a finger the entire day until it's time to leave. He'll get back on his motorcycle and leave. And I can't get them boys to understand you're killing yourself by doing that. For Christ's sake, roll up your sleeve, take off your flip-flops and get dirty for the sake of the kingdom of God. Because here's what they told every one of those people that's out there. Oh, the pastor's too good to do this. Or the pastor's too lazy to do this. Man, a pastor who won't work. You know what the Bible says about somebody who won't work, right? All right, here we go. And look, there's a whole lot of big pastors out there, ain't there? <laughs> so here we go. Well, I'm just, put, I'm just digging a hole deeper and deeper, ain't I? I done called y'all nuts. I done called pastors fat. What else can I do? Who else can I offend today, right? <laughs> 
While I'm on a roll, I might as well defend everybody in one, one fell swoop. Here we go, number next, and maybe the most important. Another characteristic of a leader. They are life givers. Check this out, not life takers. Look what Paul says. Paul says in verse 18, For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Hey, is there people you want to hang out because when you're around them, they just pick you up? You know what I mean? I mean, there's some people, you just get around them for a little while and hang out, and you just feel better. Hey, have you ever went to a hospital room and encountered that? You went up there because somebody was sick, and you went up there to give them sympathy, and they ministered to you, and you left feeling better? That's a life giver. And that's what leaders do. Leaders are life givers, not life takers. Now, life taker, on the other hand, you know those people, you see them coming, and you try to act like you don't see them and hope they don't see you? you know, and you know why you do that? Because they are life takers not life givers. And a leader ought to be a life giver. Now boy, that's my goal as a leader right there. You know, we cut up, we have fun, but by golly, sometimes we get serious, don't we? But bottom line, I want my ministry to be a life-giving ministry, not a life-taking ministry. Paul says if we're going to thrive in ministry, we've got to be two things. We've got to be strong and we've got to be submissive. And the people we're submitted to are those people whom Paul describes right here as these biblical, scripturally qualified leaders. Some of which I have great hopes you guys are going to be one day. And we're going to send you off to make a big splash in the kingdom of God for His glory. Stand with me, please. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And God, would you help us settle the question in our hearts of what it is. It is your holy, authoritative, infallible word. So God, would you help us not just say that with our lips, but would you help us live that with our lives by adjusting our lives to whatever it is your word says, knowing that we are to be in complete submission to you and your word if we expect to thrive in the future. So Lord, I pray for those who are here today that maybe have never been born again. They've never submitted, surrendered their life to you. May today be the day. I pray for those who are wanting to be a part of this fellowship and submit their lives collectively to this fellowship, with this fellowship, I pray that today would be the day. But God, would you use this church, these emerging leaders, these followers to impact this world for your good and for your good and glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.